Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Mike Munger, chair of the political science department at Duke University, frequent columnist at the Library of Economics and Liberty, and frequent guest here at EconTalk. Our plan today is to do a bit of a grab bag. We're going to talk about at least two topics that listeners have suggested, fair trade and trade agreements. And if we have time, we'll talk about other matters as well. Mike, welcome back to EconTalk. Great to be here. Uh, let's start with fair trade coffee. Um, First, what is it, and uh, is it a good idea or a bad idea? Well, you've probably, most of the listeners have, have probably seen it. If you go into a coffee shop, sometimes it'll be an option. Sometimes it'll be the only thing that they, that they sell. The idea is that um, farmers of coffee are exploited. They don't get very much of the fairly high final uh, price. And so let's charge a little bit more and make sure that more of it goes to the farmers, and hopefully all of the premium goes back to the farmers, and I feel better about having my $3 cup of coffee. Are you a coffee drinker, Mike? I'm a big coffee drinker. Sometimes I apply it topically. Uh, how's that working for you, <laughs> that topical thing? Uh, I'm, it, it is amazing how many people have a kind of coffee dependency. It has become, in the last 10 years, uh, just something that we do. It's a big part of American culture now. Yeah, it has it has grown a lot. And and for those of you who are not coffee fans, I recommend uh, the novel Memoir from Ant Proof Case by Mark Halperin, which most of the book is a satirical um, take on coffee drinking. Uh, the main character hates coffee. I warn you, by the end of the book, it's it's quite poignant and gets quite serious. But the uh, it's a delightful book for coffee haters and even probably coffee lovers. Um, so, do you drink fair trade coffee? Do you order it? If there's nothing else available, yes. But otherwise, you just get the something. Uh, I'm not exploitive. willing to pay the price premium because I don't think very much of it goes to farmers. I think it's a it's largely a marketing scam. Even the people who are in favor of it will tell you that it isn't working in the way that they had hoped. Somehow, you can't raise the amount of money that people at the beginning of an input get by raising the final output price. Yeah. There's no way to push uphill on uh, in the way that the, the product is produced. And why why is that? What's the economics there? Uh, although I want to first mention that in a previous podcast, I think you revealed that you do not drive a Prius. Is that correct? One of the many cars I do not drive is a Prius, yes. So uh, the Prius, as you revealed uh a colleague of yours in the chemistry department admitted that even though he drives a Prius, the impact on the environment is um, probably negative. It may well be that buying fair trade coffee is just part of an entire lifestyle that I don't buy into. That's right. But let's let's analyze the economics of it. So it, it seems like a nice idea, this idea that um, by paying a premium, you can help some people who you'd like to have a better life uh, who currently don't. Um, it's a voluntary branding, uh, the certification of fair trade. There's nothing coercive about it. It's not a regulation. Uh, it has emerged from uh, people's concerns about 
the living standards of poor farmers. So it seems like a nice idea in principle. But All of those are, are good ideas. I, if, if I could offer the person who had grown the coffee a tip, I'd be happy to give him 2 or $3 on every cup. Well done. This is excellent coffee. Here you go. On every cup? Oh, yeah. That's a lot. I, I usually leave a dollar anyway. I'd give $2 if I had the farmer. You yeah. would actually spend it on something besides uh, more nose rings, unlike the barista that I tip. Uh, well, I want to come back to that, not the barista, but the uh, <laughs> or the nose rings. But I want to come back to the tipping idea because I actually think that's an interesting way to think about this. But l- let's—that's the metaphor I think that people try to use. Is that it, it, the the increment is a tip that you're giving for a good service because this guy has grown good coffee. It's supposed to be better than usual quality. It's hand grown, and we want to make sure that we actually reward the farmer rather than paying all those nasty middlemen. But the premium really isn't supposed to be for the quality of the coffee. It's supposed to be for the the uh, to improve the standard of living of people in the in this production chain who yep. are who are much poorer than the drinker of the coffee. Yep, and they're they're not getting the full value of their labor. It would be the equivalent of hard as it is to imagine paying a premium on your athletic shoe, uh, and hoping that some of that would go to the uh, Indonesian. Uh, factory worker who's assembling yep. the shoes. Yep. Um, the fair, tra- the fair trade sneaker. Uh, yeah. So the better, better safety standards, uh, a pension, um, with the idea that yes, more of it goes to the worker. So in the case of the fair trade coffee, why isn't it working? What are the economics that might keep it from working? Well, I think there's two problems. One is that it's just difficult for it to go back to the farmers. There's a certain number of people that are growing coffee. And that's the amount of coffee that's going to be available at the current market price. If we raise, in effect, the price of coffee, more people are going to try to grow it. So we have to have some way of preventing all these poor people who want to grow fair trade coffee because then they could make more. So even if you buy the premise that this is a good idea, then any increment that they're likely to get is going to be dissipated by rent-seeking. We're going to line up. Explain what that means. Explain and, what you mean by dissipated by rent seeking. Well, if if you tell me that um, I'm going to give away a hundred dollars, and I'm going to decide that one of the three of you get it, uh, we'll all spend a lot of extra time growing coffee when we could grow some other product because I think well maybe I can get that hundred. One of us gets the hundred dollars. And maybe they, we only spent fifty or sixty dollars to grow the coffee. The other two people also spent fifty or sixty dollars to try to grow coffee. They don't qualify for the fair trade premium. So as a group, the three of us spend hundred and eighty dollars for a transfer of a hundred. There's a waste of eighty dollars there because we're competing. Now, if somehow this also increased the total demand for coffee, it would be different. But if we raise the price of coffee above the market clearing price. Too many people are going to try to grow coffee, and at the other end, too few people are going to try to consume it, unless there really is an enormous premium. that The demand curve for fair trade coffee slopes upward. That would be unusual. It, 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 I've heard people argue it. Um, so I, I think just, just on its own merits, none of this is going to get by, even, none of it's going to get all the way upstream to the farmers, even if every person along the intervening supply chain is of the best of goodwill. There's no way to do it. Well, I think it's a little bit confusing because most of us don't have a really good understanding of how coffee gets produced or uh, sold. So I want to take a simpler domestic example, which I think about sometimes. You hear it claimed that uh, people at at Walmart 
and other retailers don't make enough money, uh, that, that there's something wrong with the system that Walmart or other uh, employers exploit low-skilled workers. I actually think it goes the other direction. I think Walmart has enhanced the opportunities for low-skilled workers by creating a business model that makes them productive. But let's take the critic's view for the moment. Uh-huh. So the critic's view is that these workers with low skills um, and and few alternatives are stuck working in these jobs with inadequate pay and inadequate benefits. And so uh, let's say that uh, I think the average wage at Walmart's about $9 an hour. Which is not minimum wage. It's well over minimum wage. Almost double. Uh, It's certainly higher than I think every state level minimum wage as well, not just the federal of 515. So they're making, let's say, $9 an hour. But the fact is, it's if you work a full full-time job at $9 an hour, you make about 18000 a year. And that is a difficult um, lifestyle compared to what some of us uh, listening are yeah, you, you are probably living. still qualify for welfare benefits. And food some, and- some benefits, perhaps. It would obviously, you know, the challenge is if, you were, if you're married, it depends on your whether your spouse is working as well. But if you're, let's talk about a single individual, mm-hmm. it would, that's, a, that's not an easy life, 18000 a year. It, of course, also depends on where you're earning that. If you're in a rural area with lower rents for your apartment or in an urban area where they're going to be higher. But everybody who's earning 18 would like to earn 30. Uh, And most of us, when we see someone earning $18,000 a year, which is below the average in the United States, we'd like them to earn more. So I I like to think about two thought experiments at Walmart. One is the tip jar. Um, So as you would leave Walmart, uh, of course, many of the people who shop at Walmart don't make a lot more than that as either, but many do. So as you'd be leaving Walmart, there'd be a little sign that would say, uh, the cashier and other employees here uh, make less than the average wage in the United States. Please um, help them out. And so it would be a form of voluntary welfare payment. Um, I've, I, what, I, what I like about this thought experiment is that it, it does two things. One, it makes you think about what the worker at Walmart would think of that. Uh, it's remarkably condescending to to turn to that worker and say, yes, you pitiful person. This is too bad. This is the best job you can get. Here's an extra dollar. Uh-huh. Uh, so I find that a little bit strange. But let's say that's the worker at Walmart really would like that money, which I'm sure they would. Yeah. Uh, they'd like to maybe perhaps earn it in a different way rather than as, as a handout. But let's say they appreciate the handout. What would be the... Uh, net effect if as a result of this uh, program, which would be voluntary, uh, let's say that Walmart uh, discovers that because of this tip jar, workers at Walmart are now earning $12 an hour. uh, The word gets out. And the word gets out that they're getting this $3 an hour premium because of the generosity of uh, Walmart uh, employees, uh, excuse me, customers. So what would happen? It would be job gentrification. Most people are upset about gentrification in cities. You've got a really poor neighborhood. Some wealthy yuppies move in, and the prices go up. Now the poor people can't afford to live there, and the people who are there change. Their identities change. So suppose we go from $9 to $12 an hour at Walmart. Then the people who, at the margin, were the last ones to take that $9 per hour are not as competitive because of work skills, habits, um, 
things that they've learned, as the people who can earn $12 an hour, you see the quality of the applicants at Walmart starts to go up. And now all of the people that you were really worried about aren't earning $9 an hour. They're earning nothing because they're unemployed. You have job gentrification. Well, presumably they they would push into other areas um, and lower the if wages. Walmart is the last resort. They might not. Yeah, that's true. I, although I think actually my suggestion what would happen is that uh, it would lower the wage at Walmart from $9 to 6 um, it, 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 might, it could go either way. So that the net wage would be $9 an yeah, hour. Yeah, sure. There's, there's two possibilities. One is Walmart keeps the wage at the current level and gets enough of a quality premium that they actually find it worth paying, in effect, $12 an hour. Or that there's enough people who will work for $6 an hour plus the three that the, well, we know there the, are. all we the know, premiums dissipated. Yeah, we know there are enough people because they're already doing it now for $9 an yeah. hour. Um, of course, then there's the other factor effect, which would be analogous to the coffee story, which is that if going to Walmart, uh, it wasn't enough socially uh, in your mindset to just pay the everyday, so-called everyday low prices, but there was social pressure to leave money in the tip jar for the underpaid employees, then presumably fewer people would shop at Walmart. Um, they'd find it um, uh, more costly than it was before. They would turn to alternatives. Some, and this is unless, the, unless there's so many people, and this is what people claim about fair trade right, coffee. There's actually so many people that value this that more would come out. Right, they make them feel good. They'd enjoy. Uh, That's an empirical question. Yeah, that is an empirical question. I. I, f- I find that hard to believe. No, I, although no I, way. No way what? No way that that's true. Yeah, I don't think it's true, but, you know, it's... Um, if, if you think it is, let's, order, let's open up Russmart. Yeah. And that means that we can operate on that business model and we'll, we'll put Walmart out of business. Right. Well, Costco is trying that. I, I should mention that. It's an interesting um, uh, marketing slash um, branding strategy. I noticed that in many of the articles that talk about how poorly Walmart pays uh, relative to what the reporter or the activist thinks is appropriate, there's also an article lauding Costco, a, comp- uh, a store I, I enjoy shopping at tremendously, by the way. I think they have a wonderful store. But, but I've noticed that they, they brag that they pay more than Walmart, and they, I think it's just a, a deliberate campaign on their part to uh, associate in the minds of readers and listeners that – that they're nicer than Walmart to their workers, and therefore, when you shop there, even though their prices might be higher than, say, Sam's Club or Walmart, that you can feel good about shopping there because their workers aren't exploited. And I think it's an interesting question. I don't know whether that campaign is successful or not. Um, it is true that on average, Costco pays more than Walmart. It probably I, gets a slightly higher quality worker. And I suspect the responsibilities of the average worker at Costco is a little bit different than at Sam's Club. They have different So they're not, they're not paying the full difference out of altruism. I don't think they're paying any of it out of altruism. I, I assume that that isn't the case. But Well, but you're saying there's a supply side and a demand side effect. The supply side is partly that I get better quality workers, and the demand side is people say, well, it's a nicer place, they pay their workers better, I'm going to go there even if I pay a premium. Well, I think that's what they're hoping for. It's, it's relatively, uh, let, me, let me say it carefully, I don't think Costco's deliberately decided, let's pay our workers more than our competitors, uh, we'll get better workers, and we'll be able to get more customers because our customers will feel good about uh, the fact that we have such good working conditions. I don't think that's true. What I think is true is that Costco's business model is such that they find it useful to hire workers who have higher skills. 
and therefore get higher wages. Having done that, they try to then get some bang on the demand side by bragging about it in these uh, forums on, on... Yeah, they're not really mutually exclusive. Correct. The, the, no, that's for the sure. The primary effect might be the supply side. I think that's plausible. So <clears throat> the, the question would be, what, what this is, and this analogy, if it's accurate, is that this, this particular um, argument, either the voluntary tip jar at Walmart or the, uh, let, let's take the Costco story and and pretend that it is their actual strategy. Their actual strategy is to, quote, overpay their workers. That is, pay their workers more than the market wage. Uh, and as a result, use it as a marketing claim. Both of those are um, something like a voluntary minimum wage, is what we're suggesting, where the impact is... Uh, good for those potentially, at least at first, for those who get the higher paying jobs, but ultimately because of competition among workers, uh, those benefits, those gains are going to be dissipated uh, through supply side uh, responses. The, the, the growth model, I, I wanted to talk about the, the underlying growth and development model too. I, I don't mean to interrupt, but the, the larger question. Yes, you do. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. I mean to interrupt you. Yeah, exactly. The, the, Go ahead. The, 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 the larger question about fair trade, I think, is one that we haven't gotten to yet. Suppose you were to come up with a recipe for how a developing nation can become wealthy and prosperous. Okay. Is your goal to make sure as large a segment of the population as possible stays in agriculture? Probably the, not. The reason people become wealthy is division of labor. Yep. And division of labor is much easier, and you can bring your cost down much faster if it's some sort of industrialized production, or if it's something where a, a production line kind of job is possible. And Adam Smith, the very first part of uh, The Wealth of Nations, when he talks about agriculture and the division of labor, says that for agriculture, it's just much harder. You can't use division of labor there. there. There's not that many different trades. So the nature of agriculture, indeed, does not admit of so many subdivisions of labor, nor of so complete a separation of one business from another. So if we want to subsidize people in third world countries to try to stay in agriculture, I'm worried this is not very politically correct, let me warn you. Okay. But what, what worries me is that we have a kind of human zoo mentality. I'd like to be able to go and visit the happy, well-paid workers in their coffee plantations in the mountains of Colombia, rather than think of them actually working in jobs where they make enough money where they can send their kids to school. Because in my mind, this is a traditional occupation. It's what those people should do, and they should get more money for it. Because it pleases me to have that kind of zoo available to me as a tourist. That is a really repellent thought. Uh, I th although I think it's... No, I don't think anybody thinks that explicitly, but that's underlying this idea that countries shouldn't change. Remember the old Sam Kinison thing about he saw the refugees in Africa? And his answer was, you live in a desert, move, go where the food is. Mm -hmm. Well, if I have an occupation where I don't make very much money, the market is telling me we need some other way of developing and becoming prosperous. Keeping people in those jobs artificially is the last thing that you want to do. Even if this were successful, and I think it's not then we're making a mistake. This is not a development model that will work. An interesting argument. Um, let's, um, let, I want to hone in on the division of labor point first. In the United States, we have an incredibly productive agricultural sector. 
that is highly uh, capital intensive. Yeah, it employs almost no one. Employs almost no one, about 2% of the workforce and produces an enormous amount of food. So I, I think it's the, um, I, I think you're right, although I would just think of it, I think of it a different way, that to make agriculture a productive activity uh, with a high standard of living, you have to bring in an immense amount of capital. And that means that a very small number of people are going to enjoy that higher standard of living. And, and the U.S. specializes in those kinds of agriculture where division of labor is possible. Coffee is a, a hand business. It's very difficult to harvest mechanically. Um, I'll have to take your word for that. So that that would that would that suggests that that there is going to be a uh, um, first an inability to to really raise the standard of living of those folks very dramatically because it's a job that, as you pointed out earlier, lots of people can do. Yeah. And as a result, any time that that sector is earning a premium, uh, there's going to be competition for that premium at the most basic level of the of the farmer. And that puts the fair trade organization in the position of essentially handing out goodies, which means people will compete for those goodies and dissipate the benefits either through lowering the uh, the price of coffee on the world market if it was a, a highly successful program with lots of people buying fair trade coffee or a hidden cost of people competing uh, to influence the fair trade organization to choose them. Um, so but let's let's get to your basic point, which is uh, it's a strange way emphasizing, uh, encouraging people to stay in agriculture is a strange way to improve their standard of living, which I think is a, a superb insight. What could we do? Uh, in, in reality, if you do care about uh, helping people other than uh, um, that barista. You're going to thank me for this because I am a segue meister. Go ahead. We could sign trade agreements or <laughs> come up with other ways of not giving them aid but just allowing them to trade on a level playing field. The United States is really protectionist in a lot of areas that third world countries actually could compete. So I, I think the answer is we need to buy more of their products that when they sell them, they can make money from it rather than keep them in this sort of museum. Well, I think the other question is what role – are there any artificial barriers to competition that are currently allowing uh, uh, middlemen and distri distribution factors to so-called uh, take it quote, take advantage of right. it, the It's farmers. hard for us. Economists call that a monopsony. Right. where a buyer might have market power. And a lot of what governments have done is create a, a government organization where, by rule, they're the only ones who can buy the coffee, and then they sell it on the world market. And that's what keeps the price down, is the fact that government is trying to make extra money by being the middleman. So, But it's hard for us to change the domestic policies of other countries that have that kind of monopsony or market power at the buyer level. Yeah, that's not... Um... That's not our strong suit. Although I guess I would suggest, um, let me let me throw out two ideas before we turn to the trade issue, which Mr. Mr. Segway. Um, the uh, first idea would be drink more coffee. Uh, I'm, period. I'm, I'm doing that. Yeah, I know you're doing your share. Uh, the question is, would does that if if all Americans uh, doubled their coffee consumption uh, as a gesture of goodwill and and didn't do it. So let's think of it a different way. You walk into uh, Starbucks. What you do is you buy two cups. One you drink, the other you throw away when you, when you just pour it down the, the sink. Um, 
that's a different way to uh, increase the demand for poor people's time and, and labor. Would that be better than the current system? I don't know the answer to that. It's an interesting question. The, the second strategy, um, well, let's talk about that one first. Then I'll, I'll give you my second strategy, and then we'll move on to free trade. What do you think of that? Uh, I'm skeptical of any scheme that involves such large deadweight losses. Um, yeah, it's very wasteful. You, you always hear of the claim that people would be better off if we went around breaking windows because think of all the jobs that would be created by people having to replace windows. Um, so it, it's like Bastiat's idea about things that you don't see. Well, that would make the world a poorer place, but it would be good for people, at least in the short run, who know how to fix uh, broken windows. And more people would fix broken windows, and it would create a lot of jobs. Yeah, that's the issue. The issue is, again... Well, the question is, what what am I going to do? Suppose I, I really want to help workers in, in third world countries, and I get a chance to buy stock in a global corporation that's planning on building a manufacturing plant in that same country. Um, and so instead of pouring out my $3 coffee, I take $3 a day and save it up and buy stock in that company. That's bound to be more helpful to workers in that country than keeping them as coffee slaves, even yeah. if they're fairly well paid. How would that help them? Well, it's going to raise the wages of both because it increases, it, it means that thousands of people are going to be employed now in uh, manufacturing, in something where I can have a capital-intensive enterprises that raises the marginal product, raises the wage of those workers. And as some people leave the coffee plantations to work in the factories, then the wages of coffee workers is going to be bid up also. And of course, I guess, you know, this general issue overarching that uh, overarching issue that that's related to everything we're talking about, which is how competitive are third world labor markets? And, you know, I, th I think this, the skeptical view is, well, they're not very competitive. Workers are exploited. They don't have many alternatives. And the more cheerful view is that uh, they're competitive enough that as corporations compete, especially multinationals compete for, for the quality, highest quality, low-skill workers in these, in, these in these countries, we're seeing uh, an improvement in their standard of living. We are seeing improvements. Still paid very little. If, even if you think that the labor markets are not very competitive and that there's a huge army of unemployed people, I don't see how keeping multinational manufacturing firms out helps. Yeah, no, that's that's the problem. No matter how bad it is at the margin, having fewer jobs can't make things better. That seems to be correct. Yeah, the other suggestion I was going to make is that uh, this goes back to uh, conversations we had with Bruce Buena de Mesquita on foreign aid. Uh, it would seem that the current um, U.S. foreign aid mechanism, which is a combination of direct U.S. aid and then indirect aid from the U.S. via uh, World Bank and IMF, other international organizations, uh, hasn't done a very good job of, uh, of creating uh, better living conditions for the people of these countries. It appears to have mainly created better living conditions for the leaders of these countries and their friends, uh, either out of unintended consequences or worse, intended consequences. That that's the purpose of this aid, is to enhance the relationship of of the U.S. government with these uh, thugs around the world. So the question would be, uh, what, what I would suggest, and this is not very um, practical in the short run, but I would suggest it's practical in the long run. It, it might be a good idea 
to reduce foreign aid uh, and to ask our politicians not to provide foreign aid because the main impact of that is to solidify the power base of the thugs that collect it and then use it to keep to stay in power and their ability to monopolize the their domestic coffee trade or their oil trade or other uh, goodies is part of the problem and will the, never be part of the solution. The two big problems we have with foreign aid is that the domestic constituencies have little interest in actually raising the standard living of people in poverty-stricken areas. The two constituencies are, first, people who are interested in improving U.S. interests in the world. And so we pay off dictators and thugs. And it doesn't really matter from that perspective very much what's done with the money because we're, we're buying ourselves influence. The second big constituency is, is, constituency is people in the U.S. who have too much stuff. And so we give away old clothing. We give away food. And the effect of this is to devastate the industries in those countries. So if you've got somebody who's trying to sew uh, together old clothing or who tries to make clothing on a kind of small-scale basis, and the United States comes in with these boxes of, of used, used clothing that we're going to give away out of a sense of altruism, then it decimates the domestic industry. If we have food, if we have grain, uh, dairy products, all sorts of things, because we want the prices in the United States to be high, the problem with that is you have to buy up the surplus. What will we do with it? Well, we'll give it to, we'll give it to poor people. That'll help. No, it won't. What it'll do is prevent them from having any domestic industry where that's going to be supplied. The, the solution, in my opinion, is to end foreign aid in the form of this strategically given money or in giving away surpluses immediately and think in terms of trade. We're going to help people by buying their products and actually give them a chance to move towards prosperity. And to earn, earn the uh, uh, higher standard of living. It's a very depressing conversation up to now. We'll now turn to, to trade agreements, but it's a very depressing conversation because you know, it basically says – uh, lifting people out of poverty outside the United States, you know, lifting people out of poverty inside the United States, we haven't done a very good job at uh, lifting them outside the United States because of the complex set of uh, effects that are going to result from those efforts is a fool's game, and you're not going to achieve the ends that you hope. I think what's depressing about that is that that's certainly an easy thing a belief to hold if you're a selfish person. It's a certain, you know, sort of the flip side of the of the fair trade scam, if it indeed is a scam. Flip side is to say, well, since we can't do anything, we don't have to try. Yeah, and in fact, it would have a bad effect, so let's not. And it, it relates to a, um, I think, a very deep issue. It's Hayekian at its, at its base, which is we don't have the knowledge uh, that it takes to really make a difference in people's lives. You know, it's, it's hard enough to have the knowledge of what you could do to make your uh, neighbor's life better because of the, or your sibling's life better. Uh, you know, might think you have the knowledge, but you often will find out that you're mistaken. To certainly, <laughs> From their perspective, anyway. Absolutely, and to certainly think of, thinking about it overseas and the conduits that such aid or efforts would have to go through, it, it is, it seems on the surface to be a rather foolish game. And uh, it's depressing then to think that this could be used as a justification for doing nothing. Um, I, I hope. Our, surely our first rule is do no harm. Yes. And yeah. it, it isn't so much do nothing. I actually think opening, signing trade agreements, trying to improve trade, 
making it more possible for us to invest in other countries, working with their governments to ensure property rights, is a really hard thing to do. If we start now, we might have a chance of accomplishing it. There's a my my favorite author, sort of curmudgeonly on this subject, is a guy named Peter Bauer. Yep. And his book, From Subsistence to Exchange, mm-hmm. um, I think is a wonderful source. If, and it, it's a, a, a series of short essays, so it's something that you can consume at different sittings. So Peter Bauer, From Subsistence to Exchange, I think is, is one of the best authors on this subject. And the, the do-no-harm perspective is an important one. We'll put a link up to the Bauer book on the, uh, at the EconTalk website. Uh, what, what's the theme of that, of the Bauer book? Well, he, he actually looks at how development projects in different countries and the theory of development, the sort of growth models, the abstract growth models that left out entrepreneurship and property rights that have motivated World Bank and other kinds of projects have led to disaster time after time. And people think, oh, the solution is we need to spend more money, we need to do it differently. No, the solution is you have to take an entirely different approach. I, um, yeah, I'm... Very sympathetic to that argument. I recently read a quote from Milton Friedman. We just um, passed the one-year anniversary of Milton's death, and um, you know, Milton said that it's impossible to do good with other people's money, and he was referring to the incentives that were inherent in that challenge. And I think that's part of what we're talking about here. It's very difficult to hand over money to folks and expect that that's going to transform other people's lives, partly because of the incentives that are going to be put in place from that uh, action, which is what we've been talking about in the first part of this podcast. L- let's move to the second part, which, it, or at least, uh, yeah, the second part, which is free trade agreements, which we've now, uh, I think, reached. Free trade agreements, good or bad? You've been saying they're good. Why? I think they're better than not having them. The, the advantage of having um, at least bilateral, maybe multilateral free trade agreements is that we preserve some of the control that we have. Remember, I said one of the domestic constituencies is to be able to reward our friends and punish our enemies. And so a trade agreement that we sign with another country still gives us that ability to um, withhold or provide the benefit of access to U.S. markets based on the performance of that country. Are they repressive towards their own citizens? Have they done things internationally that harm our interests? But we're not giving direct aid. We're just giving access to the market. And as I often ask people, um, do you make your own shoes? If you don't make your own shoes, then you think your time is worth more doing something else and then taking the money that you get to buy shoes made by someone else. Now, maybe it's your next-door neighbor that makes shoes, but probably not. Most people don't have shoes made by their next-door neighbor. Maybe it's the guy in the next state. Maybe it's the guy in the next country. So wherever shoes can be made most cheaply, those are the shoes that I want to buy, provided they're of good quality. So our consumers are made better off by having trade agreements. And it's, it's always difficult for me to understand the argument that people make that somehow trade agreements seem to harm Workers in both countries. Yeah, no, I like that. As economists, we usually argue that trade makes both sides better off. Uh, it's quite impressive to argue that both both parties are exploited by trade. Yeah, which uh, which you see is that argument all the time, right? So we're made worse off somehow because 
we're being tricked into buying cheap products that take away our jobs, but somehow people in the, in the nation we trade with are also being harmed because yeah, they're Mexico. Mexico is also worse off. They're getting because of NAFTA. They're getting low wages because they're selling to us. It doesn't really make sense. But what I want to focus on is, given that we're now in the month of November, and as a result, a mere twelve months for the fascinating sprint to the election year finish of two thousand and eight. Of silly season. Yeah, um, we're going to hear conversation uh, up from the politicians and the candidates about trade agreements, and I I want to talk about. You're really talking about the virtues of trade, uh, and I want to make a distinction between. Tr- free trade and trade agreements. So I'll agree with you that if the United States said, this would be my preferred uh, anti-world poverty um, program. We say to the nations of the world, all of them, not bilateral, not multilateral, but superlateral, all of them, version of multilateral, we are opening our borders. Give us your poor, your tired, your non-rubber footwear. Uh, Exactly. And uh, although the tired and poor part, I I want to leave for another podcast on immigration, which I hope we'll have soon. Uh, So I want to let's not talk about the importing of of foreign workers, but rather the importing of foreign goods to start with. So we say, so just give us your non-rubber footwear, exactly, and we'll take your shirts, we'll take your underwear, we'll take your electronic uh, devices, anything you can sell in our country that people want to buy, you're free to sell here without any. Um, barriers at all. Um, that, to me, would be the single best thing we could do uh, for the world. And, of course, we would benefit as well uh, dramatically uh, from that. Not as dramatically, I think, as the other nations of the world would benefit from uh, from that policy. And let's make it clear, we're not suggesting, although I think it's often treated this way, we're not suggesting, at least I'm not, that the benefit to foreign nations would be that they would get to sell us stuff. The benefit to foreign nations would be they would get to have some of our stuff, and they would get to specialize in things that they did particularly well, and relatively well. They may not know well. yet what that is. Correct, and it would be presumably different than what they're doing now uh, in a world with trade barriers. Uh, in the process of lowering our trade barriers to zero, uh, we would, I think, our economy would grow. And that would be a model that we would share with other nations, encouraging them to do the same. But it would not be contingent on their imitating us, which is what is inherent with a a trade agreement. With the current system uh, where free trade agreements are negotiated either bilaterally with another nation or multilaterally with a set of nations, there's this idea that we will open our markets supposedly giving up something, access – and in return, we need access to their markets. So that that idea is is intellectually bankrupt. It's a mercantilist argument that that Adam Smith railed against, I think, successfully, at least among economists, uh, for a two hundred or so year stretch. It that's not the argument. The argument is we're going to both be better off. But if you guys don't want to open your markets and you want to harm your citizens by putting up trade barriers, we're not that stupid. We're going to let our citizens thrive, and we'll give you some of the benefit from trade, not as much as if you lowered your, bar- your barriers at the same time, but we'll do it unilaterally. Russ, I- I'm afraid we are that stupid. Well, a little I-, I haven't heard any of the leading candidates make the argument for immediate unilateral 
reducing of U.S. trade barriers. Correct. And uh, they like to... Um, In fact, there's parts of Ohio and Michigan where if you made that argument, you'd be beaten and stoned. Yeah. But I think that's the right argument. And the, the trade agreement argument is what we call in economics a second best solution. That, that, that politically, well, I would call it a has some chance in hell of getting past politically argument. Exactly. And, and even though it's not as good as pure free trade, it's, uh, it's better than nothing. Well, it, it preserves the ability to be able to be a nanny and try to dictate the domestic political terms of the other country. And for some reason, we value that. Uh, yeah, and it, but I think it's more than that. I think it's worse than that. I think that puts that that's the best light you can put on it. <laughs> to calling me, it a nanny. Yeah, and unfortunately, I think the real argument is it basically says the following. Um, let's take CAFTA, the Central American Free Trade Agreement. CAFTA is supposed to give us uh, the United States uh, tariff-free trade between the U.S. and five Central American. I think it's five, five or six Central American countries. And the argument is that um, that would be good for both sides. But, of course, we didn't – when we negotiated CAFTA, we couldn't just do the right thing, which I'm suggesting, which is just say to those nations, hey, come sell stuff. We'd love to have it. I hope yep. you'll, you'll find things that we like. Instead, we said, well, come sell us stuff, but not sugar uh, because we have a bunch – bunch, it's a handful, uh, almost literally a handful of people in the United States who are extremely wealthy – but it's a national defense argument. We have to have sugar in case we go to war. <laughs> exactly. You're right, because if, if somehow we didn't have access to sugar, we'd get weak. And then uh, without candy, inexpensive candy, uh, we can't fight effectively, and therefore... Well, and the, the price, if, if we had a lot of extra sugar, then soft drink manufacturers might switch from using corn syrup, and that would mean the price of corn would go down, and we'd lose all those votes in the Midwest. Yeah. Uh, but the simpler argument is that there are people who grow sugar cane and sugar beets in the United States. Not Again, not very many, uh, but they're geographically concentrated in a handful of states. And they basically said to President Bush, the representatives in those states, if you want our support for CAFTA, you're going to have to have it include an um, exemption, basically, for sugar. So that uh, these, domest- these um, Central American nations, which are really good at growing sugarcane, aren't able to get rid of our uh, profits in the sugar industry. And that's what happened. So CAFTA passed. It's called a free trade agreement, but it's not exactly a free trade agreement. And in the area of sugar, it's not a free trade agreement at all. It's a um, uh, just more of the same protectionism that's kept the price of sugar high in the United States for a long time. So one argument is, is that we as economists should, should be against these free trade agreements even though they're feasible, they do two horrible, at least two horrible things. They bureaucratize trade. They create this bureaucracy of people who count to see whether you're in compliance with the free trade agreement. Ironically, it's supposed to be free trade. Of course, it's highly regulated uh, in this transition period uh, toward free trade, as well as the exemptions we're talking about, like sugar. So one, it bureaucratizes trade. And two, it puts the president of the United States in the unfortunate position of being the purveyor of economic ignorance. So to get support for these trade agreements, the president, and President Bush is just the latest example. He's been preceded by, uh, his predecessors all did the same thing. They get up there and they say, this free trade agreement's great because it lets us sell in foreign markets. And as a result of that, the president of the United States is basically selling 
this mercantilist idea that we trade because of the virtue of exports. It's like the, the local chamber of commerce. We're going to be able to sell more stuff. And that's really a horrifying uh, thing. And as a result, uh, Milton Friedman hated these uh, so-called free trade agreements on the basis – on the argument that if it's a 1,000 pages or 8 inches thick, it's not a free trade agreement. It's just a form of subtly managed trade. Now, that's that's the half-empty uh, view. The half-full view is that, well, yes, they're bureaucratic, but they do move us in the right direction, and they move us toward freer trade, not real free trade, and that's better than nothing. What do you think? I, I think the, the increase in economic and effectively political interdependence is something that we really need. The United States is not viewed in a lot of Latin American countries as somebody that you can trust. And just having those sorts of exchange just mean we're more likely to, to get along with those nations. Also, we're about probably to pass the Forewarn Act. Have you heard about the Forewarn Act of no. 2007? No, what is that? Senate Bill 1792. Remember, um, Mike, that we're not allowed to take a position on a, uh, on a pending uh, piece of legislation here. So uh, you can just describe how it works. Let me, let me, let me talk about <laughs> the Warren Act, which was its predecessor, the Worker Adjustment and Retraining Notification Act. Okay. And that was passed uh, 1988, was amended a couple of times. And what it says is that you have to give 60 days notice before you close a plant and has a number of other things that um, where before a company leaves the United States, before they're going to close down and move somewhere else, there, there's a number of restrictions on them. Um, it seems to me that we're likely to move more towards making it difficult for companies to move around so well, a lot of the problem that you hear is that jobs are leaving the United States. Right. And this is something that you and I have talked about before, but, but let me remind our listeners, um, what country in the world lost the most manufacturing jobs between 1990 and 2000? It lost the most manufacturing jobs. The answer is China. Yeah, I'm, I'm a skeptic on that claim, but I've, I've heard that. I, I, well, I think, no, but let, let's, let's... I think, think that claim is hard to it, it, back up. It's a gross loss. And that's why I back off from it pretty quickly. I've lost thousands of pounds in my life. The problem is I've gained thousands plus 250. Yeah, yeah. But I'm but not still, even... there's a lot of factories, a lot of big places that were handloom sort of places in China that closed up and became new uh, factories with four or five people running a highly mechanized process. Now, it's true that those people then went and worked somewhere else in a manufacturing job. Right. But this is how we count. So the, 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 my defense to your claim, about it being gross, is this is how we count lost jobs. Well, so some you, of us, not not, not well, you, right. <laughs> politically, if, if you say, how many jobs did we lose when this factory closed? Well, probably not that many. Most of those people found some other kind of employment. And more importantly, their children went to college and found a completely different kind of employment. They didn't stay stuck in those jobs that we weren't very good at producing anyway. Right. So we didn't lose those jobs at all. No, I, I understand. I agree with that. If we're going to count jobs that way, then China lost more jobs than we did. I think that's probably true. Uh, I, I don't. My, my skepticism is that the. I think the basis for the for the claim that you hear about China is actually about net jobs. Yep. And, it, and if you I want to talk about that. net I'm, jobs, I'm skeptical then of that. Why would it be that we think working in some lint-filled uh, textile factory in South Carolina is the ideal job we want for our children? No, I. I 
totally with you there. We, but, we want we want something else, and the only way to get it is to if some other country can produce it better, let's let them do it, and then we need to train the next generation of workers to do something else. Correct. But I I, I interrupted you on your Chinese claim, so. Well, and it is something that we've gone back and forth about a couple of times. It comes down to how you count. If you count the way that many of the leading candidates, I think, on both sides for the presidency count them, you can't say we've shipped our jobs to China. To the contrary, what's happened is that we've lost a lot of jobs in the U.S. and in China to productivity, to increase productivity. That helps consumers. Yeah, I, no and, where you are. and it helps workers too. I think yep. the the ones who are employed have have higher wages, and then the workers who are displaced, either they or maybe their children. I don't mean to minimize the fact that there really are problems with transitions. Being laid off. Yeah, with transitions. Um, I, that, the, what the what the Warren Act does that I was talking about. Yeah. What the Warren Act does is make it, it, it provides money for that sort of retraining. I don't see any problem with that. If, if we had, if, if we decide the way we're going to solve this problem is there are, there are winners and there are losers from free trade. Let's try to take part of the amount that the winners get, which is enormous, and make sure that we have adjustment assistance for workers that lose their jobs. I, I don't have a problem with that. If what that meant was we get to go do what you said, and that is eliminate all our trade barriers. Well, the problem I have with that. And this I, I've learned from my colleague, Don Boudreau, who we've interviewed a few times. Um, why are you only going to pick trade? You know, there's two issues here. One is there's lots of adjustments that take place. Let me, let me back up for a minute and give, give our listeners some data on these kinds of changes, give the magnitudes. It's really quite unbelievable. The transition that you're talking about away from uh, – excuse me, toward technology and toward productivity with fewer people uh, producing uh, manufactured goods in the United States. Our, our manufacturing production is up dramatically in the last 30 years. It's, it's about doubled, which is an amazing thing. Everybody talks about how manufacturing in the United States is being hollowed out. It's being, it's being reduced as a source of employment just like farming was. Just like farming, and it is an enormous success story. The jobs in manufacturing that have remained in the United States are either here because of protectionism or because we've kept the most productive, highest technology jobs to make stuff that's still effectively made here. And as a result, there are fewer people working in manufacturing in absolute terms, and certainly as a proportion it's fallen dramatically as a proportion of total employment. Despite that, total production is up dramatically because of those productivity gains. But let me talk about turnover in the, in the labor force as well, which is this issue of retraining. Um, I heard it mentioned in one of the presidential debates uh, as a totally made-up number, but it's relevant to the kind of gross changes, the gross job losses that you're referring to. One of the candidates was challenged to do something about the 1.5 million jobs we've lost to China or the – I forget the other number – so, so many millions of jobs we've lost to trade in the last 10, 20 years. The American economy in a typical quarter produces anywhere from 7 to 9 million jobs and destroys 7 to 9 million jobs. Those are the gross changes, the absolute changes as – Businesses expand and get created as businesses contract and go out of business. 
So there, there's an enormous churn of activity in the economic in the in the labor market in the United States. And we focus on this one tiny piece of it, the trade piece, and say, oh, we've got to make sure that these workers are taken care of. And in fact, there's one, tremendous dynamism in the market that, that creates these new opportunities. And two, the economic changes that are causing job loss are much, much greater than just trade. And that's something that I'm really glad that culturally we tolerate in the United States because it gives our economy the dynamic aspect that it has. It creates the growth that eventually uh, rewards all workers and their children uh, and not just uh, freezes things in a static point in time. Friedrich Hayek has an interesting discussion of this in The Road to Serfdom. He talks about two different kinds of security. One kind of security is something that's a universal guarantee of subsistence. So if you lose your job, then it's it's sort of morally arbitrary in a sense. You were working in something, you, you've, you've worked in this uh, factory for a long time, you haven't done anything wrong, but you lost your job because some other country can produce it more cheaply. Or the demand for the product falls, or yep, yep. all it's kinds of reasons. Technology comes Highly along. skilled yeah. people. Yeah. There's nothing that they've done wrong. It's morally arbitrary. They haven't done anything good either. They didn't accurately predict the future of the market. We might very well offer them some sort of subsistence. What we must never do is guarantee their existing income stream so that they'll continue to earn the same amount regardless of what happens in the economy. So I guess what I'm talking about is the first of Hayek's two kinds of security, which is we offer some sort of adjustment to workers who lose their jobs for whatever reason. It has to be of short duration and a small amount so as not to distort incentives too much. We have that now. That's we do have it now. It's unemployment I'm, I'm, insurance. I, I don't see that we need to make any particular changes. We, we have to admit that that's what we're offering. We're, we, what we must not do under any circumstances is say, well, you have this really high-paying job that you lost. We're going to offer you that same amount of income because that insulates you from having to forecast the future and from that sort of dynamic process where I try to think, what should my children do? What sort of job should they have? And the answer probably should be is that they should be sugar manufacturers. <laughs> yeah, which would be a bad – that's not a good thing. That would be a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, we've got about five minutes left. The other issue that comes up that I think brings us back full circle on these free trade agreements are so-called environmental and safety uh, regulations, uh, things that would allegedly make the uh, – world trade more the playing field more level and that we've got these regulations in the United States on environment and on safety and various fringe benefits we should require uh, developing countries that trade with us to have these same restrictions one it's good for them supposedly and two uh, that way the trade will be on a more fair basis uh, what do you think of that well what we might say is we will refuse to trade with you unless we have these rules I, I actually think um, the only way that those rules are ever going to happen is if they develop a middle class with sufficient political independence that in, the, in a democracy it's going to be offered to the extent that that's what the citizens want. I don't think it could be done from outside. And the, the cost to us of doing that, now these are implicit costs, they're not costs that we recognize, but right. suppose we have a policy that says we're only going to trade with countries that have these policies. Our consumers are going to pay an enormous amount, and there's no benefit whatsoever to the workers in these countries that don't have these policies anyway. So we're paying a lot and getting nothing. Well, right? yeah, we're reducing the opportunity for the division of labor that we've talked about earlier. 
but that's that that's the source of prosperity and prosperity these are these are what economists call luxury goods these policies i think are what economists call luxury goods if i'm worried about having enough food to feed my family tomorrow i'm not as worried about safety regulations and old age pensions it's only when there's a level of prosperity and a middle class of sufficient size where politically you can say these are policies that we want at that point the government might start to do it yeah, feeding your kids is more important than clean air, and feeding your kids is more important than... Or having a, a, a cover on a saw blade, yeah. or any of the thousands of things that OSHA does. Some of them make sense, and some of them are just unnecessary hindrances. They're regulatory policies that impose cost with no particular benefit. Well, Insisting that other nations do that is crazy. But some of them, as you point out, produce benefits just at a cost that would be... Uh, too high if you're very poor. If because they're luxury goods, yes. And I think that's the most important insight. I think the uh, – let's give OSHA the benefit of the doubt, just for the sake of this argument, of course, Mike, uh, that, that everything that for they do – For one minute. I'll keep it for one minute. <laughs> yeah. We've got 40 seconds left. I'll keep, I'll keep stalling. Uh, you can keep interrupting. But uh, let's, give, let's give these safety regulations the benefit of the doubt that might be put into a free trade agreement and say that they really are going to make the workers safer – it's hard to believe, but it's possible those workers would prefer less safe conditions and higher take-home pay. Well, there's more, any question that they would, yeah. More job opportunities and uh, and less safety. And for us right, to they look, at it, they, they look at you like you were crazy, right? For us to impose them on them is like saying they have to. If they want cars, they have to drive uh, Lexuses. Priuses. They got to get those Priuses or Lexuses. and drink fair trade coffee and hang out at the faculty club. Yeah, exactly. And uh, that's. One, there's an incredible, incredibly arrogant paternalism about us knowing what's best for them. But I think the other point that needs to be made is that this is really a bootleggers and Baptists argument, uh, refer, referring to an earlier podcast with Bruce Yandel. What's really going on here is we're trying to keep jobs in certain sectors in the United States, and to gussy it up and make it look nice, we pretend we're doing it because we care about uh, the poor workers well, overseas. It works. Some people, some people are duped by this moral indignation. Yeah. They are, but not as many of our listeners, I hope, as the average uh, American. But that's maybe a pipe dream. I don't know. Yeah, I guess we'll find out in the comments, won't we? I, that's correct. Uh, my guest today has been Mike Munger of Duke University. Mike, thanks for joining us. It was terrific. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.